Let's turn to Mark chapter 6, and we'll be reading verses 45 through 56. Hear God's word. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before them to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret, and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. If you were to to encounter Jesus, the worst responses would be either blindness or forgetfulness. Sadly, we see both of these in the part of the disciples this evening. This passage shows us that unfortunate reality. They have seen him, and if they have understood him, they have forgotten him. But we also see the benefits of sight and remembrance on the part of the people in Gennesaret. In the end, you and I will find ourselves with a challenge this evening, once we've seen Jesus, to live always with reminders of him in front of us. So far in Mark, this is review, he's been detailing the rolling out of the kingdom of God. Jesus has been proclaiming and doing miracles, calling his disciples, and he's been on mission. The characters in the story have seen incredible displays of power, especially the disciples whom he called to be with him Some important backdrop backdrop stories for our passage today include the calming of the storm. You see that parallel with Jesus walking on the water. That displayed in the calming of the storm, his supernatural and cosmic power over the natural and spiritual worlds. So we will not be digging back into those themes tonight. There's another important backdrop, and it's the feeding of the 5,000. And that miracle from last week displayed Christ's central role in the fulfillment of Old Testament promises and in future hope. And there are many of his other miracles that are also behind this, cleansing the leper, healing the paralytic, casting out demons, healing the woman with the hemorrhage, raising Jairus' daughter, all of it done by the power of the gospel and the repentance that Jesus taught. This power, these miracles on display in this word of truth are the backdrop of our passage today. There will be less focus on the significance of the healing since today's are largely repetitive compared to prior miracles. And we will focus more on the response today, the response of the disciples and the response of the people in Gennesaret. The problem, once again, is that the disciples are blind and forgetful. And Mark says they, were, they had hard hearts. The main point today is see, receive, and remember. See, receive, 
and remember. We'll look at this, first of all, by looking at Christ's presence with his disciples, and then we'll look at Christ's blessing to his disciples and the people in Gennesaret. And then, out of the ordinary, we're going to go to the Psalms and look at Psalm 77 as an application for our lives. So let's jump right in to seeing Jesus with Christ's presence. Jesus has once again come to his disciples with power, walking on the water. But we also see it not just in the fact that he walked on the water, but in the fact that Mark tells us some very seemingly ordinary things about the setting. He tells us about the mountain, the evening, the sea, the land, the wind, the night. Very natural descriptions. But what these do is actually set up for us a revelation of a very supernatural intervention. Not only Jesus walking on the water is supernatural, but the significance of the mountain and the sea and the land. The mountain is the place of God's presence. The mountain is the place where the temples were built because the people believed that there was, that was the closest to God's dwelling place in the heavens. And so Moses went up the mountain to pray. God came to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai and Jesus went up the mountain to pray. And there he communed with the Father. The people in the Old Testament would ascend the mountain, and in these times, these days as well, would ascend the mountain to worship in the temple. The mountain was the theological place of closeness with God. And in the sea, it's quite the opposite. It's a place of death and chaos. In contrast to the mountains, it was considered the farthest place from God's presence. And here the disciples are described as being in the midst of the lake. ESV simply says, they were out on the lake, but it's more precisely in the midst of the lake. And this is the exact same structure and vocabulary as in the midst of the sea, where Israel is in the midst of the Red Sea, where God gave them dry land in the midst of the Red Sea in Exodus fifteen nineteen. And as we're talking about dry land, land is a third place of importance. Land is the place of life. Land is the place where God brought forth vegetation, where God put the animals. Land is the place of order and abundance. And that's where Jesus starts to enter into the sea with his disciples. So we see Christ's presence is really God with us here in this passage. As Jesus came from God's presence on the mountain to the disciples and their peril on the sea, it parallels the fact that Jesus has come from God's right hand in heaven itself as the incarnate one who condescends to his people in their peril and sin and death. And Jesus comes to his disciples walking on the water. He tramples the sin and death that humanity, that has overwhelmed humanity for so long. Now, we've heard this story so many times that we forget the shock of walking on the water. Jesus walked on the surface of the water, one foot in front of the other and did not sink in. Some scholars try to explain this away, saying he was on a sandbar near the shore. There's no room for this type of explanation in this passage for a couple reasons. First of all, they're in the midst of the sea. Second of all, their reactions. These are expert, seasoned fishermen. They would not have been caught off guard if they were near the shore and saw somebody walking near the shore. What we are seeing, as Mark tells it to tells this story to us. We are seeing the supernatural divinity of this God-man highlighted. Mark's intent also shows us that this could not be explained by some sandbar explanation. 
A naturalistic explanation like that would be entirely inconsistent with the very existence of the story, the way Mark is rolling out the person and the divinity of Jesus. This story absolutely, absolutely is highlighting a miracle, something that they did not expect. And the statement is this, only God walks on the water. Now, people with a Jewish, uh, in the Jewish world with an Old Testament understanding would have recalled this. God is the one who walks on the water and through the oceans. Nobody else can do that. In Job 8, it says, God alone trampled the waves of the sea. And in Psalm 77, 19, it says, Your way was through the sea, yet your footprints were unseen. In Isaiah 43, it says, The Lord makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. Yahweh is the one who walks in the ocean. And so for Jesus to do this is to set himself up as Yahweh. Because only God can do that. And it says Jesus meant to pass by them. This is a puzzling phrase. Jesus was trying to sneak around them, the God-man trying to sneak around his disciples, walking on the water. You think he could have come up with another way without getting caught if he had really intended to walk by them without being noticed. Well, either the disciples, it appeared to them, it looked like Jesus was trying to pass by them, and maybe that's why it's written this way, or it could be that there's rich theology also behind this. Because to pass by, if we're talking about a passage that is loaded with Old Testament uh, theological significance, to pass by is exactly what God did to reveal himself to Moses. To pass by, and that phrase is used multiple times in that story, God passed by Moses in glory. In Exodus 33, to pass by then is to reveal one's person. Jesus is showing his divinity and he's showing salvation by walking on the water, by coming to the disciples in the midst of the storm. Only God has such glory to reveal. There's one more thing that kind of clinches the deal to show us that Jesus is displaying that he is God in this passage. And when they're terrified, I imagine what Jesus heard might have been comical walking on the water. He heard some screams coming from this boat. They thought he was a ghost. What he says in response, he says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. It is I. That is ego eimi in Greek. I don't like to use Greek often, but this is an important phrase. This ego eimi is exactly how Greek represents the Hebrew for Yahweh. I am. I am who I am, God says in Exodus chapter 3. Isaiah 41, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. Isaiah 43, I am he before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Isaiah 48, I am he, I am the first and I am the last, my hand laid the foundations of the earth. Only God is ego eimi. Not every time that the phrase ego eimi is used is it necessarily a reference to Jesus's. He's not claiming the name of Yahweh every time. But here in this setting, as he walks on the sea, as he has come from the mountain of God, as he meant to pass by them and to show his glory, and as Mark tells us the story, he is claiming to be I am. And it is only the presence of I am that brings comfort. Jesus would have Really, no place to say, take heart, do not be afraid, if he is not God. It is God's presence that makes us able not to be afraid. But even 
if he were simply identifying himself to his disciples, saying, it's me. Even if that's all he's saying, he is still reminding them of all the things that he has done. He's still saying, remember who I am. I just fed 5,000. I saved you from an even greater storm. I have healed the lame. I've raised the dead. I have cleansed the leper. It's me. Don't be afraid. This is a call to trust and to proclaim this gospel. Remember, take heart. Things look really difficult for the disciples, but Jesus says, I'm here. Remember, do not fear. Christ is God. And he is revealing his person to his disciples. But the disciples missed it at first. They just thought he was a ghost, a phantom. And Mark tells us that he says the disciples had hard hearts. If Mark is indeed recording Peter's words, it makes sense that Peter would look back and say, in that moment, our hearts were so hard. Because by the time that this was being written, by the time Peter had told these stories to Mark, he's gotten it. He has faith. He understands. His heart is no longer hard. And Mark says it's because they didn't understand about the loaves. Now, that was last week's passage, the feeding of the 5,000. And this is more than just about the bread. It's not like the disciples didn't understand molecularly what was going on with the loaves. The point here is they don't understand the one to whom the loaves point. And if they don't understand about the loaves, how can they understand about the calming of the storm or walking on the water? By now, they should have known. They've seen Jesus at work time and time again, but they have hard hearts. They are stuck on the natural world and on their circumstances and can't see past them. How many times have you and I been just like the disciples? We've seen God work in incredible ways. God has done miracles. We've seen testimony of them in God's word. We hear stories from believers of God's faithfulness, and we've seen it in our own lives, how he has taken care of us. On a difficulty scale, if we were to make up a scale, he's done 11s out of 10. He's raised the dead. He calmed the storm with his voice. He saved me from my hard heart. But then we face a difficult situation that's a 3 out of a 10. Getting into a college, getting a job, affording the hot water tank that just died. Or a 5, finding a spouse, enduring abandonment or loneliness. Or seven, facing chronic illness, even death in the face. Or nine, watching a loved one abandon Jesus in spiritual darkness. Now, I made up that scale. These are different numbers for different people. I understand that. But the point is, we can face much smaller things and forget the magnitude of what Christ can do. The disciples are described in this passage as tortured in their rowing. The ESV says that they are making headway painfully. They're working hard and they're getting nowhere. So what do they do? They keep working. They keep working at it. Where do you feel like you're in the midst of the sea of death and chaos with tortured rowing, making heavy headway very painfully in the middle of the night with the wind against you? In all these situations that pop into our minds, usually we turn first to fear or to anxiety or to worry. And even when Jesus shows up to help or to comfort or to sustain, we're so locked into our situation and our tortured rowing and our efforts. And we are, we're just thinking like naturalists. We just think a little more work, a little more money will fix it. And so we miss him as he's walking on the water. We think he's a ghost. And once it's passed, we look back and we say, when will I learn that he was with me the whole time? 
God himself has come to be with you and with me as Jesus. And he works mightily. Let us not miss the fact that Jesus has come to us to save us. Let's see this Jesus. Let's see him in the storm. And let's see that his presence is God with us. Let's also receive Jesus. See Jesus and now receive Jesus. This is where we're going to focus on Christ's blessings. In the Old Testament, the presence of God brought incredible blessings. Let me itemize a few of these for you. Genesis 28, God says, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God is with you and will do what he's promised. And in Exodus, God was present with his nation in the wilderness and passing through the Red Sea and led them from bondage into freedom, into the promised land. In Psalm 16, the psalmist says, I have no good apart from you. And because the Lord is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. These are just some of the things that benefit those who are in the presence of God. And it keeps going in Haggai chapter two. My, God says, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Fear is not proper when God is near. Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters. Here's a passage directly talking about what the disciples are experiencing. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, God has promised. And in Habakkuk 3, an incredible hymn of praise, it says, God trampled the sea for the purpose of saving his people. These are the benefits that come from God's presence. He comes to save and to give good gifts, just as Jesus does for his disciples in our passage. And Jesus gives every single one of these benefits to his people. For the disciples, when Jesus comes to them, he encourages them. He comforts them. He says, take heart. Do not be afraid. So often we feel overwhelmed. But being comforted and being encouraged is usually a decision to be made. I'm talking to us, to you and to me. We need to decide to take God at his word when he has promised to bring us to completion, when he has promised to be with us, when he has promised to comfort us. It looks like the storm is going to win and I don't see a way out, but God has promised that he is here and he will carry us to the end. So I cling to the comfort that he offers rather than to the fear of my situation because he who promised is faithful. And Jesus then calmed the wind. As soon as he got into the boat with them, his presence calmed the sea. Now, I don't want you to think that this means Jesus is going to make your life easy. That's not the promise. But Jesus has promised that when he is with you, your worst headwind, sin and death, are calmed. Your worst headwind of fear and of anxiety is calmed. Because our ultimate enemy was slain by Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't going to leave us. He says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's a gracious God with a gracious presence. To not take that comfort would be to reject what he has offered. For the people in Gennesaret, this is in the second half of our passage today, verses 53 through 56. 
Jesus came into their presence and there was a very different response. The disciples didn't recognize him, thought he was a ghost, but the people in Gennesaret, they immediately recognized him, Mark says. And they ran and they went and got their friends who needed help and they came to Jesus and filled the marketplaces. They ran about the whole region. These are people with distress and with sickness and they saw Jesus as the one who saves and all who touched him were made well. That word made well is the same word as saved. All who touched him were saved. Mark is telling us that Jesus' healing touch is a miracle in these physical senses, but they simply show us the bounty of his salvation that he gives to us as he conquers our sin and as he gives us righteousness. All who Jesus touches, sins are forgiven. Their guilt is taken away. Comfort is given. Fear is removed. So I have to wonder, how do I become like the people in Gennesaret? Do they have some special level of faith? Did they have some sense of uh, a super spiritual right kind of faith? The right um, Sometimes we just turn faith into this really complex, ethereal, hard-to-grasp concept. I, I wish I had what those people had in terms of faith. Their faith is so rich, but I don't even know what that means. No, it's not about that. The people in Gennesaret had the right object of faith. Their trust was in the right person. They saw him and ran to him and believed that Jesus could heal. It's nothing special about those people. They looked to Jesus. That's what saves. Do you look to him? Do you trust him? Even if you don't have all the right answers nailed down for theology or super Christian knowledge on how to raise kids or how to be the best wife or the best husband or how to exemplify godly living in the workplace, it's about receiving and resting on Christ. Christ alone. Every salvation is that same miracle of Christ's touch and forgiveness. But we must see who Jesus is and we must choose to run to him as the Spirit gives us strength to do. If we've not been touched by Jesus, we must run to him now for our sins to be forgiven. And this forgiveness is rooted in the fullness of Jesus' ministry, again, which Mark is building to, and he'll detail it in chapter 15. His death on the cross and his resurrection. God with us, given for us, the benefits of his righteous life and substitutionary death and victorious resurrection, given to those who see his presence and rest on him by faith. That's the drive, the driving force behind the salvation. So if you have not trusted this Jesus, I must urge you now, Trust Jesus Christ. Don't be a blind fisherman tossed by the storm anymore. Take hold of your anchor, Jesus Christ, who by giving himself for his people secured a hope that this world can never shake. The forgiveness of sins, the death of your deserved death, and eternal perfection in the economy of grace. And then God's presence is with you forever, without fear. Thank God that these disciples will have faith, even though they don't in this passage, all of them except Judas. Thank God that the people of Gennesaret trusted him. Would we also be counted in that number? And then those who are in Christ, we receive these immense blessings, comfort, fullness of joy, sure footing, holiness, eternal perspective, eternal life, and more. These are all promises of God, abundance, immeasurable. So we must see who Jesus is. We must receive Jesus and his blessings. 
and then still somehow we forget. We are forgetful people. There's this old bluegrass song that always comes to mind when I say this. It goes, Lord, I'm a human, and humans forget. So remind me, remind me, dear Lord. We are forgetful people, and we have to remember that we forget. If we don't remember that we forget, then we're going to forget that we forgot. And we have to intentionally fight our forgetfulness with remembrance. Keep a bookmark here in Mark 6. Let's uh, flip over to Psalm 77. What Asaph does here in Psalm 77 is exactly what we are to do. We're not going to read the, the chapter in full, but you can skim through. I'll tell you what verses I'm talking about as we go through this. Asaph is in distress, just like the disciples on the lake, just like the sick in Gennesaret, Asaph is in distress. The day of trouble in verse two, in verse two, he says, my soul refuses to be comforted. In verse four, I am so troubled that I cannot speak. Have you ever experienced a moment like that? You've seen death. You've watched loved ones suffer. You don't know what to do when somebody walks away. Asaph is experiencing a situation like this. And what he decides to do in this passage, the solution to his situation is not to run away from the situation. And it's not to get angry at the Lord, although God can handle it. Run to him with your frustrations and with your questions. But there is a better solution, and it is to recall what God has done. To remember what God has done and to find confidence in his promises. Look in verses 5 and 6. Asaph says, I consider the days of old. I said, let me remember. And then more specifically in verse 11, he says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. And then what does he discover when he recalls what God has done? When he tries to remember who is this God who seems to be leaving me hanging right now? Who is he really? And he remembers these things about God and about his promises. First, verses eight and nine. He is a God of steadfast love. And he is a God of grace. And he is a God of compassion. Those are the first things. And he's questioning these in this moment, but he remembers God is a God of steadfast love. He is a God of grace and he is a God of compassion. In verse 13, he is a holy God. He even says, what God is great like our God, even in the midst of his distress. Verses 14 and 15, you are the God who works wonders. You with your arm redeemed your people. And then at the very end, verses 19 and 20, He says, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. And look at verse 20. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. 
in the midst of my distress where I don't even know how to express what's going on. My soul refuses to be comforted. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. It seems that God is set against me, but I will appeal to this. I will remember who God is. And I remember he is the one who walked through the sea to save his people who led Israel by the hand of Moses and Aaron out of bondage into the wilderness. Yes, it was difficult, but he took his people to the promised land because he is a God of steadfast love. He is a God of grace and he is a God of compassion and he is holy and he works wonders. That is our God. And remembering that he is with us changes how we approach what we are enduring. So for you and for me, let us assess our situation. And when I say life is hard, something pops into your head. Something is difficult. Assess the situation, but do not become slave to your situation. Because right here beside you is God with us, the one who can trample the seas. Jesus has promised that he is with you by his spirit. In John 14, 6, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The spirit is with us. His presence is is with us. The solution then is to remember who he is. Who God has been is consistent with who God will be. God does not change. And if he has been faithful in the past, he will be faithful in the present and he will be faithful in the future. Remember, even in the midst of the sea, he is a God of steadfast love. He has made promises and he will keep them. He has not forgotten to be gracious, even when it seems like it. He is compassionate, he is holy, and he is great, and he works wonders, and he redeems his people. He cleanses uncleanness, he heals disease, he raises the dead, he advances the kingdom of God. His word is power, and he leads his people as the good shepherd. This is our God who is with us. Practically, what this means for us is let's listen to the testimony of other believers. They talk about what God has done for them. Listen and be encouraged. The people of Gennesaret, some had seen, some had heard reports of Jesus' miracles, and they believed the reports as evidenced by their response. When we hear the reports of God's faithfulness in the lives of other believers and in scriptures, let's listen. Let's believe them. And let's train ourselves to be people who remember Habits, routines, repetition. And that means removing habits that keep our focus on the natural world. Maybe it's going to certain places or thinking certain thoughts or interacting in certain social places, even social media. Or maybe it's certain topics of conversation that we just need to remove from our life. Train ourselves to be people who remember the truths of who God is. That means talking about the gospel in Christian fellowship. I think our community group does a great job of that. I think this fellowship as a whole does a great job with that, with believers. And let's also talk with Christians who have died by reading their books. Let's hear the witnesses of other believers. And let's pray. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, it was a very active, present awareness of God with us. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. God is present to give us our bread today. And forgive us our debts today as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation today, but deliver us from evil today. Very present God. Prayer is a great way to remind ourselves of our truest identity as God's children. 
and read scripture and meditate on it often. His word is a lamp to our feet. We have hidden his word in our heart that we might not sin against him. We meditate on his law day and night. Let's take advantage of our phones. Get the apps that help you memorize scripture. Set reminders. I mean, we check our phones so often and they pull us a thousand ways except God. Why not use that tool to draw us to God? Sticky notes, routines, podcasts, sermons. We've got plenty of recommendations for all of these if you want them. And one that might not come to the surface the quickest for us. In order to be people who remember, let's be people who sing. People who sing. Songs pop into my head all the time. I start singing and uh, sometimes Elliot chuckles. Um, Songs are a great way for us to remember the truths of who God is. Sing as a family. That was some advice I got uh, right before Elliot was born from the men at Redeemer Church. The advice was do not neglect to sing as a family because you remember these things together and you share these moments together. And I also think of the slaves in America, these slaves who lived in extended trials, singing while working. And they weren't singing, I've been working on the railroad. They were singing rich songs of the truths of the Christian life. Listen to these words. I never intend to give the journey over until I reach my home. Oh, some say, give me silver, and some say, give me gold. But I say, give me Jesus most precious to my soul. These songs, if we make them the theme and the chorus and the repeat of our lives, will remind us who we are in Jesus. And let's keep coming together to hear God's word preached. Let's be willing listeners, and let's take communion. Jesus gave us this meal right here in front of us as a reminder. Do this in remembrance of me so that we would not forget, so that we can tangibly experience remembering what Christ has done. So in conclusion, I hope we are challenged to remember the presence and the power of Jesus, to see him, to see God with us, to receive him and the blessings that he gives to us and that we would be people who remember. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our ever-present help in times of trouble, we are forgetful people. We are so easily distracted by what is in front of our faces that we forget what is behind all of reality. We forget that for those who have faith in Jesus Christ and in his sacrifices for our sins, we are raised out of death into life. Our citizenship is secure and will never be taken away. We long to be closer to Jesus. We long to know the presence of God by your comfort of the Spirit who is with us forever. Would we be willing participants in remembering even this week? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.